All right, if you would open your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. We are in the particular part of Daniel, which is called the apocalyptic literature. This is the literature of visions. Uh, You might recall that the first six chapters had a lot of great stories, and those were the stories that you grew up on as a child. If you grew up in the church, if you grew up in a believing home, those are the ones you heard at Sunday school. Tremendous stories. And we revisited those stories. We saw those stories maybe from a little different point of view than maybe that you've heard before. Well, now we're into the kind of wild stuff. We're into the vision stuff. We're into the apocalyptic. It's kind of a lot like Revelation that we had looked at a year ago. So this book, this last half, comes at you with vivid pictures and powerful portrayals of otherworldly images and realities that have a a big truth that's to be reapplied throughout history. So most of us tend to read apocalyptic literature and think of these outlandish numbers and pictures as pointing to specific people, specific events, and specific situations in the final days. And so each generation, ironically, isn't it? Each generation grabs the book of Revelation and Daniel and and interprets them as being in the final days, the final end times. But what we've come to see is that there are reapplications of big truths throughout history. It meant something to the original readers. It meant something to Augustine. It meant something to the believers in 500 A.D. It meant something to the church in 1000 A.D. It meant something in 1960. And it means something today in the 2000s. And it will mean something forever as long the Lord has this here as a pilgrim people. Okay? So there are reapplications. Now... We're into Daniel 9, and it gets even crazier. Wait till we get to 10 and 11. It just, it's the burner keeps being turned up a notch, and the flame gets a little higher, and I get a little hotter up here. It gets a little stuffier. But we're going to wade through it, and you're going to hang in there with me. Some of you think, why should we be preaching this stuff? It's too controversial. And I say, because it's in the Bible. Okay, all right. Jonathan Edwards described a personal interaction he had with the Lord in this way. Once I rode out into the woods for my health in 1737, having alighted from my horse to a retired place. And I cannot picture I've studied a lot of Jonathan Edwards. I cannot picture him alighting off a horse. Just can't get that picture out of my mind. Now, he went to a retired place, as my manner commonly has been, to walk for divine contemplation and prayer. So he's going for a horse ride. What he used to do for exercise, he would chop wood. He would chop wood for 30 minutes, an hour every day. That was his exercise, but way that he would go out and seem to be putting the distractions of everything else aside, including his ministry, he'd go for a ride on a horse and then he'd walk around in creation. And as he says here, I would contemplate things and pray. And he says, at this time, I had a view that for me was extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and his wonderful, great, full, pure and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension. 
So this grace appeared so calm and it appeared so sweet and also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably and classic Edwards, excellent with an excellency great enough to swallow up all my thought and conception, which continued as near as I can judge for about an hour. And it kept me in the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping out loud. Do you have that kind of interaction with the Lord? Do I have that kind of interaction with the Lord? Hmm. Now, What's the secret to knowing God like that? What's the secret to having a real, intimate fellowship, communion with the Lord? To have a real, honest, authentic interaction. When you talk, you know He hears you. When you read His words, it's like the words are singing off the page at you. What's it like to know God like that? What's the secret to knowing God like that? You know that you actually see Him, you see the contours of His glory in such a way that each color in that rainbow knocks your socks off. You see it, you savor it like it's better than candy. And you can't help but spread it. What's the secret to knowing a God like that? What's the secret? Do you know? During the Easter meal last Sunday, a conversation started at the table in this way. It started with the crisis that's created today from divorcing, are you ready? Exegetical, biblical theology from systematic theology. I know you all are very intrigued by this discussion, aren't you? Our conversation, this is how our Easter conversation started. It started with, there's a crisis today. Whoa. <laughs> there's a crisis today between biblical exegetical theology being separated from systematic theology. Tremendous crisis. What's happening is we're divorcing story from system. In other words, there's a crisis today because the drama of the soil, of the story of the Bible, is being ripped and separated from the doctrines and the gracious truths that are planted in it. It's like this. It's like taking trees, doctrine, systematic theology, taking these trees and ripping them out of the soil of the Bible. And so you have two camps. One wants to uphold the soil only. The other camp wants to uphold the system only. And they treat these two as if they're divorced when God says they're married. And what happens when you do this is you, you take the drama story out of the doctrine. You take the whole and the parts and separate them from each other. You take truth and beauty and pit them against each other. That's how our conversation was. I just want to let you in on that. Well, then the conversation moved to another thought, and it was how crucial it is for teaching today. It's crucial to teach. It's crucial to teach that these two are together. It's crucial to teach the whole story and the drama of Scripture. And yes, the theological doctrines and trajectories that grow out like massive oak trees that you hang on to and find shade and comfort and protection and life from. Yes. 
And we went to how important it is we've got to have teachers that teach this. And then we moved to we've got to have teachers. We don't just need the teaching. We need teachers to teach this stuff. And then uh, my brother and I, without hesitation, we both agreed on what teacher had the greatest impact of us. And this is what Pete said. He said, I made sure this particular teacher, I made sure that I was on time to his class so I could be there just for his opening prayer. Because when he prayed, I knew that this man knows God in a way I don't. End quote. Do you this morning long to know God in a way you don't right now? If you do, this passage is for you. Please stand for the hearing of God's Word. Daniel chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4a. Then we're going to jump over to verse 20 and read to 23. So as you can tell, we will spend a couple of weeks in this passage. Now, in the first year of Darius, the son of Aserus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy and with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord, my God, and made confession. Now let's move down to 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, For the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision, the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh, Lord, we ask your help. We ask your sanctifying, gracious work in our lives. We all acknowledge that we are desperate for you. We admit our need for you. And we ask, Lord, that you would draw near and you would give grace and you would exalt your son. And you would lift up our hearts and minds. And you would give us the word that we need to hear from you this morning. And so, Lord, would you help us? Illuminate and enlighten our minds. Would you help us by working powerfully in our hearts to taste and see the truths that we look at? And, oh, Lord, would you send us forward singing and speaking and proclaiming and delighting in the glories of Christ? And we ask this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Now, Daniel 9 is a massive skyscraper. It is a huge chapter in a very big book. So if you were to look at the skyline of Daniel, Daniel 9 would be one of the tallest buildings in the skyline. It's massive. It's huge. So many, many floors to this chapter. So where do you start? How do you begin a chapter like this? Where do we start? Well, you start like you do in any big building. You enter at the ground floor. So what we're going to do, and that's what we're going to do today, we're going to enter at the ground floor. And when we enter at the ground floor, we're going to find Daniel in a specific role. We're going to find Daniel in the role of a fellow fallen worshiper. We're going to find Daniel in the role that he shares with you and me. We're going to find him sharing a fallen condition that we can identify with. So there, he needs God. He needs the grace of God. He's a desperate fallen worshiper, desperately in need of God and his grace. He's just like you and me. And so at the ground level, there is, by looking at Daniel, mutual fallen realities that we share and that apply to us. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to enter in at that level. But then at another time, we're going to get into the elevator and we're going to drop down to the basement. So we're going to enter at the ground level. Then we're going to drop down to the basement. And at the basement, we're going to see the foundational structures of this huge skyscraper. We're going to see the strengthening support system of the chapter nine. What is it? And what we're going to find is that the structure, the foundational structure. Uh, yes, I'm just going to say it. The foundational structure of this tectonic building is covenant. And we're going to see that this word covenant is actually the foundational structure of the whole Old Testament. But we're going to bump into Daniel in a different capacity this time. So whereas today we bump into him and he's a fellow fallen worshiper like us. He's a sinner like us. He's a pilgrim like us. He needs God like us. He's seeking to know God like we're seeking to know God. But we're also going to bump into him in a redemptive role. He's not going to be like us here. He's not going to apply to us here. He's going to be pointing to someone else. Okay? Then we're going to be done with that. And we're going to get in the elevator and we're going to go up to the top floor where the, where the wonderful suites are. And we're going to enjoy the view from the top floor. And from the top floor, we're going to see this panoramic vision of all of redemptive history. We're going to even focus on the particular final end times. And yes, we're going to get into the controversial 70 weeks. Lots of fun to be had in the 70 weeks. We're going to have lots of fun there. So this is our plan. It's a big building. We're going to enter at ground zero. We're going to go on the ground floor and we're going to look in the ground floor. And at the ground floor, we're going to look at the issue. Do how? How do you grow in a knowledge of God beyond what you know now? That's our question now. And then we'll take the elevator to the basement, see the structure of it. Covenant and a redemptive role of Daniel. Then we're going to take the elevator to the top and we're going to enjoy the view of the, the end times. The reason why books are sold. The 70 weeks, right? All right, so let's start with seeking to know God in a way that we don't know him now. Let's seek to do that. All right, to do that, I'm going to give you the answer right now. So here's the big idea of ground floor. You walk in, 
The doors opened up and it says, this is what this is about. When you come in on this floor, this is what we do. We specialize in this. We specialize, Daniel 9 says, we specialize when you walk into this chapter of helping you regain your confidence in God's word. We specialize in that. Do you need help regaining your confidence in God's word? Daniel 9 says, oh, read me. Read me, please. What did the first year of the Persian world domination do to the faithful Israelites in chapter 9? The first year that the Persians ruled the world, what did every faithful Israelite do in Babylon at the time? They grabbed their Bibles. Why? Because they read stuff that was written decades ago in a place called Jeremiah. Let's say Jeremiah 25, which says, This whole country, Israel, will become a desolate wasteland. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon. And his nation. And this is what the Lord says. When the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to you to bring you back to this place. They would read their Bibles and they would start shaking. He just did that. Babylon's gone. And he says he's going to take us back to Israel. Can it be? So Daniel grabbed his Bible when Babylon fell. Look at verse 2. In the first year of his reign, that's why this is here. I mean, why again does the text go back and forth? Isn't there a chronological order to this book? I mean, how in the world are we supposed to follow this if he doesn't follow the right dates? Don't you get tired of Daniel doing that? You know, we're at Babylon and then we're into Persia. Then we go back to Babylon and now we're back in Persia and we're just kind of going back and forward because the point, the intention of the author is not to give you a timeline. It's to communicate truth, theological truth to you. So the reason why the first year of his reign is highlighted here is because Daniel saw Babylon fall. Daniel knew the Bible. Daniel grabbed Jeremiah. And in verse 2, I perceived in the books the number of years, the books is referring to the whole Pentateuch, that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel's looking around him. He sees Babylon fall. He knows that now the Persians are in control. That was already talked about in the scriptures. Are we going back? Now, the point I want to make here is not this. It's a good point. God keeps his word, so put your confidence in his word. This is a tremendous point. This is a huge truth. God keeps his word, so put your confidence in his word. This is a point, but it's not the point I want to hit at. This is the point. He'd bring Babylon down, right? Yes, he did it. Trust him. He said, I'm going to bring Babylon down. He did. Trust him. He says, I'm going to take you back to Israel. I'm going to return you. Trust me. When your sight says, what's going on? Where is God? 
what's happening, faith says, hope and cling to his word. When your sight says it doesn't look good, faith says, trust him anyway. When sight says it looks very bad, it looks like it's not going to happen. I don't feel like it's going to happen. Faith says, this is what he says. Trust his word. Now, this is a great point. This is a tremendous point, but that's not the point I want us to see here. What I want you to see in this passage is much more personal than that. It's much more intruding into your life than that. It's much more pushing up against you than that. It's much more impactful and subjective and, yes, I'm going to say it, experiential. This passage is here to give you an experience. Yikes. We Presbyterians don't talk about that, do we? Look at what Jeremiah did to Daniel. Look at verse 2. He's grabbed Jeremiah. Notice it did something to Daniel. Look at verse 2. First year. I perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass. Then notice what happens in verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy and fasting with sackcloth and ashes. In other words, he humbled himself before God. Do you see what's happening here? Jeremiah is actually doing something to Daniel. When Daniel grabs God's word and he starts reading God's word, it starts doing something to him. Experientially. It starts impacting him. It starts moving him. It starts pushing him and changing him and transforming him. All in the context of reading it. Don't miss the order. He reads it, then Daniel. First God's word, then Daniel. First God's word, then Daniel prays. First God's word, then Daniel pleads for mercy. First God's word, then Daniel humbles himself. God's word is passing into the very soul of Daniel. God's word is actually penetrating deep into his heart. God's word is working in Daniel. Now, this shouldn't be a shock to us. We shouldn't be shocked at the passing and penetrating power of God's Word. We've got that theme all over Scripture, don't we? We know the writer of Hebrews. What did he say? He said God's Word is like what? A double-edged sword. Sharper than a double-edged sword. Penetrates through all tissue, organs, bone. It gets where it needs to be. But sometimes we miss the fact that it's not this long sword. It's the Roman dagger. You know the difference? The, the Roman longsword, sharp on one side, blunt on the other, heavy, long, weighty. It's for blow after blow after blow at a distance. The dagger is for up close and personal contact. The dagger is for the most difficult kind of fighting you can have in any war in any century, whether you have an M16 or whether you have a cane. And that's hand-to-hand combat. The word is likened to a dagger. 
for quick, deep thrusts up close. And it's double-edged so it doesn't get hung up on the rib. It slides into the heart. And when you got to yank it out real quick because someone else is coming, you don't want to get hung up on the rib. Double-edged dagger. The Word of God was thrust into the heart of Daniel. Boom. Now, this shouldn't shock us. We also have another picture of God's Word in Scripture. We have it not only as it penetrating and passes into the soul or into the heart of the reader, but we also have a picture of God's Word that it's this imperishable seed. In other words, it has divine life in it. You take a piece of glass and you plant it in the ground and you water it and you fertilize it. What happens to that piece of glass? Julie, you're shaking your head. What happens? Nothing. You plant a seed into the ground. You water it. You fertilize it. What happens to it? It grows. What's the difference between the seed and the glass? The seed has life in it. God's Word is an imperishable living seed. It plants divine life into your heart. It grows divine life in your heart. But the catch is it's planting life where there wasn't life before. In other words, divine life is implanted into an ungodly life. Divine life of the word of God is planted in your heart and it grows divine life. So God's word is implanted into Daniel It passes and penetrates into Daniel into such a way that he prays, into such a way he pleads for mercy, into such a way he humbles himself. And the question is, do you see the power in this? Oh, friends, do you see the hope in this? Do you see the incredible comfort in this? That when you come to the scriptures, you come to the scriptures in a way in which it's alive and it's sharp and it actually penetrates and passes into your soul. And so you can bring your hard heart. You can bring your unbelieving heart. You can bring your spiritually indifferent heart to the word of God and it works on you. It passes into you. It plants divine life in you. Now, this might come as a surprise to some of you, but there are times in my life, and my desires and my affections for God are so small, it scares me. So what do I do? Do I pray? I don't want to pray. I don't know what to pray. I have no words to pray. Okay. Do I plead for mercy? I wouldn't mean it. It wouldn't be genuine. It would be like mumbling a bunch of vain, empty words. Okay? Do I humble myself before God? It would be easier in those moments to bend steel. What do I do? What do you do? Do you see how backwards we have it today? What do I mean? Well, this is what I mean. We try to pray first. 
we try to plead for mercy first. We try to humble ourselves first. And we wonder, what's going on? Why am I not changing? Why do I still sink in spiritual sloth and indifference and I'm unaffected by the things of the Lord? Why can I do all these things and nothing happened to me and I not change a bit? Why can I spend four hours praying and walk out completely unaffected? Fall into the same sins that I was just praying about and pleading with God for four hours. We got it backwards because first you go to the word. Then you pray. Then you plead for mercy. Then you humble yourself. We need to regain our confidence in God's word to work in us. In other words, if God speaks in his word, you'll have something to say. If God sanctifies us, we'll plead for mercy. If God shows his glory, you know what you're going to do? You're going to humble yourself before him. And all of that happens in the word of God. It gets so close to you, it does hand-to-hand combat. It can smell your breath. It's so powerful. It plants a divine seed in you that grows eternal life. imperishable. You can't destroy it. You can't stop it. That's what God's Word does. So too many of us are small and we're weak and we're immature in our spiritual life and our relationship with God. And the reason why we are is because we do not go to God's Word first. In other words, we're small, we're weak, we're immature. We know that, man, we, I should be eating As the scripture says, what more solid food, but I still can't get beyond Gerber food. I'm still I'm still using the bottle. I still can't get beyond the small, little mushy. It has some nutritional value, but it's mushy and it's small and it really doesn't taste all that good. If you've ever had baby food but you want and you know, you need to move forward to the meat. You know, you need to move forward to vegetables. You know, you need a full course round, healthy diet of God and his glories. But you choke on it. And the reason why we stay in the baby stuff and we're small and immature in our relationship with God is because we do not go to God's word first. We go to our feelings first. We go to our our moving spiritual experiences first. We seek out close encounters with God first. We do ministry first. We try to love first. We try to pray first. And in some circles, it's even a badge of honor to be anti-truth and anti-intellectual first. It's a badge of honor to do away with theology and do away with doctrine and do away with God's word and do away with truth, all for loving God and all for the sake of some sort of purpose and ministry. So I'm going to say a little comment on that real quickly here. You can know God's word, know doctrine, 
no theology, no truth rationally and not know God. Yes. Amen. Amen. But. You can never know God without knowing doctrine, truth, biblical dogma and systems of who God is. Never. Never. If you want to know God, you've got to know the Bible. You've got to know doctrine. You've got to know theology. That's how you know it. All right. Where are we? I want to highlight prayer for a moment as we're winding down here because we know it's all crucial, right? I mean, prayer is one of those ones, and we talked about this on Wednesday night. If I was to say, okay, how many of you are content and happy with your prayer life? Please stand up, raise your hand. You're content, you're happy with your prayer life right now. Stand up. Yeah. Not many of us are content and happy with our prayer life, though we know it's vitally important, though we know it's of utmost importance, though we know it's a crucial discipline in the Christian life. We know it's extremely vital in growing and knowing God. So I want to take that first and I want to say this. You can't pray when you have nothing to say. You can't pray when you have nothing to say. When and where do you find something to say? The Bible is first, meaning this. The Bible is primary speech. Prayer is answering speech. Do you know what that means? Even the structure of the Bible is this way. The first five books of the Bible, it's all God speaking in his actions in history and his interpretation of his actions. So you've got the first five books of the Bible. God speaking, speech acts, powerful acts, seen in history. Then he brings messages that are united to these events. And he says, it's the power of God for your salvation, Israel. Do you see what I'm saying? And then when those acts are, in a sense, done in one sense in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, there's a prayer book that that falls right after it. It's called the Psalms. And the Psalms are now responding to all God spoke here. David has something to say because God spoke first. Prayer is answering speech. So you want to grow in your prayer life, you need to grow in going to God's word first. As you hear from God, as he speaks in his word, as he thrusts the dagger into your heart, as his words pass into your very soul, as the seed is planted in your heart with divine life, you pray. And you respond and you talk back to him because he speaks to you. You now have words in your mouth and in your heart because he put them there. You see the difference? So our prayer lives are bad because our word life is bad. If you want your prayer life to increase, the word, the priority of primary speech needs to increase. And this is why don't miss what Edward said. He says, once I rode out into the woods for my health. Remember, he lighted off the horse. Notice what he said he did. My manner was common. This is my common manner. And this is the historic. This is the historic perspective of how you grow in knowing God. How prayer 
is fueled. And this is how the church has historically said it's been lost today. But this is what the church says. I went for a walk for what? Divine contemplation. In other words, he takes the word of God. And while he's thinking and turning over and chewing on the word of God, contemplation called scripture meditation. Prayer erupts. The Puritans would say it this way. They love word pictures. They'd say this. Take the pollen of God's word, chew it up in your mind and watch it turn to honey in your heart. God's word is primary. And as you get into God's word, God's word works on you. And as it works on you, you begin to respond in prayer. As it works on you, you call out for mercy. As it works on you, you begin to humble yourself. It gives you the life. So all prayer, all personal piety, all growth in knowing God starts with God's word. All right. Now, here's the last question. And this is how we're going to end. And it's a very crucial question. and It's a very fearful question. Are you afraid God won't come through for you, though, when you do open his word? I mean, if he says he's going to pass his words into my soul and he's going to divinely implant life into me, what if he doesn't? What if he leaves me in my unbelief, my hard heartedness, my lustful heart, my craving heart? My angry heart, my complaining heart, my spiritually indifferent heart, my spiritually unaffected heart. What if he just leaves me be? Well, here's the answer. Look at verse 21. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight. Now, we're going to get to that because that that's just loaded. Swift flight. There's a picture. He comes in swift flight at the time what? When did he come? The evening sacrifice. Oh, brothers and sisters, do you get that? In other words, God's word, his word works in you because of a sacrifice. God is going to send Daniel a word. So we know new revelation is coming. So revelation is going to come to Daniel. But when does it come? It comes at the evening sacrifice. Well, what happens at the evening sacrifice? At the evening sacrifice, blood is shed. All barriers are removed so that God can draw near. So that God does pass into the soul. So that God does work his words into your life. And so we have the basis of God actually working in you is because there's a sacrifice. And obviously, you fast forward through redemptive history and we see the ultimate sacrifice that's pictured and portrayed in those sacrifices that couldn't take away your sins. And so you have the sacrifice of Christ is so powerful. His sacrificial life that he lived a perfect life for you, his sacrificial death, he dies a substitutionary death for you. What does he do? He removes every single barrier that keeps God's word from working in you. You're afraid he won't work in you. And usually we're afraid because we know what kind of people we are. And we know how sinful we are. And we know what we're like. And he says, so what? I work because of a sacrifice. Not because of you. 
but wait a minute, you don't understand my feelings. I mean, my feelings are impenetrable. I mean, my feelings are like, you're gone. You can't do it. I have no faith at all that you will. And he says, so what? Do you think I based everything on you? I answer because of a sacrifice. And if we still don't get it and we still are fearful, you look at verse 23. In verse 23, we see at the beginning of your pleas, this angel says, Gabriel to Daniel, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, the word went out. Daniel, the word didn't go out in the middle of mercy. It didn't go out at the end of mercy. It went out soon as you said, mercy. And here you get a very unique, a unique picture of the heart of God. You get an x-ray into his heart. God delights in mercy. He loves to give mercy. And every time you come to his word and you're asking, Oh Lord, work on me. Do a deep transforming work in me. I have eyes that are blind. I have a heart that's like a rock. Work on me. And before you can get that plea out for mercy, he's answering Answering, he's acting, he's working, he's on you. Okay? Now, you still don't get it. Well, let's look at verse 23. Actually, let's go to 24 now. No, at the end of 23. I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Now we get the whole full-fledged circle here. He acts because of a sacrifice. He removes every barrier from acting. There's nothing that hinders God from working a deep work in your life. That nothing hinders him from planting the imperishable seed in you. There's nothing, no barrier that keeps him. Your sin, your guilt, if you know him, all these things, all removed because of a sacrifice. And he delights to give you mercy. As soon as you call out for him to work in your life, as soon as you ask and seek his mercy, he delights in it. He loves it. And why does he have a sacrifice? Why is there mercy for you? the passage says, because you're greatly loved, Daniel. You're greatly loved. And you say, I don't feel it. I don't feel deeply loved today. And if you're honest, you say, you know, if I really look back at my week this past week, I don't know if I felt deeply loved at all by him this week. And if I was to look at this past week and start stacking up some months and I say, I don't know if I felt deeply loved in a long time. When's the last time I felt deeply loved? And you know what this passage says? Where are you trying to find yourself deeply loved? Are you trying to find yourself deeply loved in how you feel? Are you trying to find yourself deeply loved in your situations and your circumstances? Are you trying to find me loving you and what you see around you? Where are you going to find where do I tell you? Romans 5, 8. I demonstrate, I show, I tell you I love you in this. While you were a sinner, Christ died for you. Feel that. 
brothers and sisters, feelings and experience doesn't happen in feelings and experiences. It happens in the announcement of good news. When you hear about a sacrifice that removes all barriers, I'm, I'm loved greatly. When you hear that there's nothing that keeps you from his love, because of the sacrifice, you rest in that love. So we've come full circle, and this is just the ground floor of Daniel 9. We're just beginning. The call is to regain confidence in God's Word working in you. Now, if you're hunting and you're wondering, well, what about some practical things? How do you get into God's Word? How do you read God's Word? How do I do it for myself? How do I, how do I get to where He promises to work in me? How do I get there? What do I do when I'm there? Do I just start reading? What do I do? Those are more practical questions, and I'd be more than happy to talk with you after. There are all kinds of things that go on in the life of the church that address that. There's a, there's a Christian education class going on right now, how you do that in the book of Ephesians. There's classes on Wednesday night that talk about how do you read the Bible? How do you open up the Scriptures? There's all kinds of things that are available. But I want you to put your trust in the reality that God's at work in you, in his word. And I'm going to end this way. Some of you have heard this before. I haven't told it in a while, so I'm going to say it anyway. There was a, there was a man who was a very famous orator in England, and he had a buddy who was a missionary overseas. And the missionary overseas was visiting, was on furlough. And so as he was speaking in honor of him, he decided to recite Psalm 23. And as he recited Psalm 23, of course, he's a famous speaker. He's a tremendous orator. He has a, a booming, loud voice. It could penetrate every nook and cranny of this hundreds and thousands of folks that are in the auditorium. His enunciation and his, he didn't make up words. He did all kinds of wonderful things, said them rightly with right diction. I mean, he was the epitome of a speaker, an orator, right? And when he got done, the reporter was just taking notes and people were just stood up immediately in standing ovation, applauding the incredible gift, the incredible talent of this man. And this man, in the midst of that, invites his friend up who had been overseas, and he had him come up and recite the 23rd Psalm. As his buddy began to recite the 23rd Psalm, people's heads dropped. Tears flooded the eyes. Hearts erupted in prayer and pleas for mercy. And the reporter saw this. And when it was over, no one moved. Deathly silence. And the reporter went up to the orator and he said, What's the difference? And his friend said, It's easy. He knows the shepherd. You go to the Word and you know the shepherd. Why? Because you're smart? Because you're more holy than me? No. Because there was a sacrifice 
He works on you. He grabs you up close and he pulls out his Roman dagger and he says, take this for life. And you'll thank him every day of your life that he does that. Amen.